So if you think about profit as being income in the numerator and costs being the denominator, uh, I'm trying to get the numerator higher. So higher reproductive efficiency, better growth um, efficiency, those types of things to produce more pounds. But you have to really keep an eye on that denominator, the cost per pound or the cost per calf. And one of the things that my ag economist friends point out to me is that when they compare high profit operations and medium profit operations or low profit operations, the numerator changes a little bit, the denominator changes a lot. So that in the beef cattle, cow-calf production, the biggest difference between high profit and low profit herds is their ability to control costs. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming soon. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. Welcome to the Beef Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Brandy Buzzard, and it's my pleasure to bring you the trending issues and topics with the best and brightest minds of the beef industry. Today, we have the renowned and respected Dr. Bob Larson, who is the Coleman Chair of Food Animal Production Medicine at Kansas State University where he is involved with teaching and research focused on beef cattle health and production. Dr. Larson is a fellow podcaster of the Beef Cattle Institute Cattle Chat podcast. Let's please give him a welcome. Thanks for being here, Dr. Larson. I am really glad that you asked me to join you. Well, great. Um, You are our inaugural guest, so we're excited to get this kicked off. I'm happy to have a a fellow case stater um, as our first guest here, so that's always exciting for me, although I did not put any purple on for this, so I feel kind of like a, a bad wildcat, but um, I know that we have a lot to talk about and that you have a very um, rich career in beef cattle health and reproduction and nutrition. So if it's okay with you, if you just want to talk to us a little bit about what it is you do at Kansas State University with the veterinary school and with teaching vet- very young veterinary students, and then we can, we'd love to hear about that. You bet. No, I think I've got a a pretty fun job. I get to uh, teach veterinary students and I, and I teach um, throughout their veterinary school as a four year um, commitment. And I get to teach epidemiology to the first year students and I teach reproduction to to third year students. And then seniors spend their time in, in two week blocks, two to three week blocks in different specialty areas. And I get uh, seniors throughout the year focused on cow calf production, bull, management and assessment, as well as uh, just overall um, kind of pr- preparing for practice in a rural area. So I get to interact with them their first year through their last year at the vet school. That's interesting that you brought up like preparing for a rural practice. Um, how does that like how does it differ preparing them for a rural practice than it does if you were preparing a student for a general practice or a practice that was specifically in an urban area? Well, there's a few things that I think, um, first of all, attract a lot of students that want to go into a rural practice, but some things that are also some additional challenges. Uh, One thing to consider is how much you are integrated into the community. Again, that's usually a, a very good thing. You know, you go to the grocery store and everybody knows who you are, and that's a really a positive thing, unless it isn't. And, and so you need to be prepared for the fact that you're really um, you never you never get to stop being doc. Um, you know, when you when you go to the grocery store, when you get, get gas, when you go to church, um, you're you're still a, a professional. 
you are still uh, being judged for your your character and your uh, ability to communicate and ability to empathize with people. You never really get to stop. Whereas if you're in a big urban area, people don't know you when you leave work. And, and that's one of the things we warn people about. But to be honest, most of the students that really want to go into rural practice, that's a what I just described is the positive. It's why they want to do that. The, the, they want that community uh, integration and involvement. Uh, but you need to be prepared for that. Um, a couple of other things are sometimes the business structure is a little bit different. Um, it's getting to be that in a lot of uh, urban areas, there's many, many veterinarians in one in one practice. We still have one and two and three doctor practices in urban areas, but m more often it's it's quite a few. So um, on-call is shared. Um, the ability to have other colleagues that, you know, that are just down the hall is really kind of a nice thing. And if you're in a rural practice with maybe two or three or four colleagues and you're all running in different directions, you're not in the building all the time, you know, you're going on farm calls, it can feel a little bit uh, like you're all on your own. Um, technology has helped there, I think, uh, compared to when I was in practice. Uh, it's great to have a cell phone. Uh, I can take pictures of something and run that by colleagues. I can get on the phone and talk to them, uh, which helps. But but again, that's another thing that's a little bit different. Uh, you're out on the producer's operation versus in an urban practice. Basically, people are bringing animals to you. And again, that just kind of changes and it doesn't it's not necessarily good or bad, but it's a little different than what a urban veterinarian may experience on a day to day basis. I think that's a good way there at the end that you described that, like, it's not necessarily good or bad. It's just different. And uh, so fun fact, I guess, is that my mother-in-law is a veterinarian in Northwest Ohio. And so she does both. She has lots of rural clients, and but she's like located in town and she has lots of people, lots of, I guess, you know, urban clients, people who just cats, dogs, that kind of thing. And um, she really enjoys them both because they're different. You know, she gets to do different things every day, um, but also has the, the, does the stuff that she really gets, that she really loves. So that's, that's interesting. It's to hear more than one veterinarian say that it's, it's really um, impactful, I guess. Yeah. So you're t speaking, it's very easy to tell that you enjoy teaching and working with veterinarian students. And you can, it's easy to tell you have a passion for that. Um, just helping prepare them. Is that your favorite part of teaching that preparation? Or is there another segment that we haven't even tapped into yet? That, that's a that's a hard question because I do like <laughs> working with my veterinary students. And for me personally, the way I teach, so I teach some large lecture halls. So I've got 115 students uh, in those large lecture classes. And, and I enjoy that. And, and some of them really stand out as, you know, interacting. And, and I look forward to seeing what they're going to be as colleagues. But then when I work with the seniors, that's in, in smaller groups. And it's groups of students that are very much interested in bovine practice, beef cattle practice. Um, and I have a little different relationship with them. First of all, it's, they're in a smaller group and we're usually in smaller rooms or in the truck together and those kinds of things. And so the, the interaction is different than in a large lecture hall. So mm -hmm. I enjoy the large lecture hall for what it is. I really enjoy my time with the senior students, which is much more interactive and they, they may not always like it because I can always quiz them <laughs> and say, well, <laughs> what do you think? Um, which is one of my favorite questions. 
But then another group that I haven't even really mentioned yet is we have a handful of graduate students that are involved in research. And that's a little different relationship as well. They're a little bit farther in their career. Um, it, they, it, it is more of a situation where I'm truly a mentor and they are basically, we let them go as far as they can and then just catch them if they need it. <laughs> so it's a little different kind of teaching with my, my big lecture classes. I'm doing, I'm doing the, the information dump with my seniors. I try to kind of get them to think through the problems with my graduate students. I expect them to kind of really come up with a lot of the questions themselves and only catch them if they need it. So I, I like all three of those teaching methods that I get to do, but they're each a little bit different. That's really interesting. The part that you said about the, what do you think? Um, asking them that and catching them off balance. I mean, it sounds like at that point, they just need to always have that switch turned on, right? The, the any, any time could be a quiz type switch, I guess, is a, is what that sounds like, which is a level of anxiety that I do not, um, I do not envy them for having, yeah. <laughs> for having well, to do and, that. And part of that is it's on purpose because their senior year, they're just weeks or months away from being, uh, the doctor on the, on the farm. And, uh, the, the client is going to say, well, what do you think? And so I get to kind of fill that role and, and, and hopefully also provide them some support as they work through their thought process. That, that is, um, that's, I was, so many years ago, I, at one point, I think lots of kids from rural backgrounds that grew up in 4-H and FFA, like they wanted to be a vet. I think, I'm guessing that we all wanted to be a vet at one time because there's not a lot of visibility of agriculture jobs other than like agriculture educator agricultural educator and veterinarian. Like in our community, those are the two most visible ag and animal science jobs. So I think everybody wanted to be a vet at one point. Um, but I can clearly and vividly remember shadowing um, our local veterinarian when I was in high school for a day and um, helping him with, um, I don't know, it was something on a horse. I can't remember. I can't remember it that vividly, I, I guess, but just the surgical type aspect and having to know all the answers and you're, you're the one responsible for the answers was way more stress than I was willing to put myself through. And I didn't even make it to college with a major of, of veterinary medicine. I stopped right there. So it's, I, I think it's probably, I wonder how difficult it is for people to understand the weight of having to have all the answers at like the flip of a switch. Um, because to me, that sounds incredibly, um, incredibly, incredibly heavy for me. It is. But, but what you just mentioned is actually one of the things that I try to help students understand is tomorrow is a great diagnostic test, meaning that I see what I see today in the animal and we'll start treatment or diagnostics today. But tomorrow I will know so much more than I know today. In other words, if my treatment is helping and the animal is improving, I'm probably on the right track. If what I'm doing isn't seeing an improvement, well, that's really important information. So tomorrow is a great piece of information. So I don't necessarily have to know every answer today. I have to know it soon enough to be helpful. And in an emergency situation, that's really fast. But many of the questions I deal with, I, I honestly have time to get the right answer and coming back. And that's why callbacks, a long-term a long relationship with my clients so I can get really good information over the phone, um, 
or be willing to go back out and see the same animal or the same group of animals over time, I can give better answers if I have multiple ways of looking at the animal. I had not ever thought about that, but it sounds like Dr. House for veterinary medicine. <laughs> yeah, if you watch if you watch the house, uh, yeah. the, the series house, yeah, that's what it sounds like. Well, I have learned more now about being a teaching veterinarian than I ever did before. So thank you for exposing us to that. Changing pace a little bit, I saw in your bio that your primary area of interest is the integration of animal health, production efficiency, and economic considerations of beef cattle. And I kind of feel like that should be the goal of every producer everywhere. Am I misplaced in that thinking? No, you're not. That that should be the goal. It's actually more difficult than you than it's reasoned. It's it's hard, um, and partly because different people have different personalities and different strengths. And for many people involved in in agriculture, if I'd wanted a a job at a desk crunching numbers. I would have had a different job. So what I really enjoy is taking care of animals, feeding, reproduction, those kinds of things. So the economic side is one. And I, I've really been fortunate um, because I don't have that knowledge. I have the interest to help people you know, make decisions that are going to be profitable for them. But I've been really fortunate. I was actually at the University of Missouri for 10 years. And then I've been at Kansas State University for 16 years. And in both those situations, I got to work closely with ag economists, and it was part of my job description at Missouri, and I've kind of made it part of my job description here at K-State. And I find that extremely beneficial, partly because it became really obvious what I didn't know. I thought I knew more economics than I did, and then interacting with the ag economists every day, and they'd go, um, that's not quite right. And <laughs> That was maybe the most important lesson I learned was, oh, I don't really know as much as I think I do, but I know people that do. And so I do feel really fortunate that, um, you know, I have an interest in reproductive efficiency. I have an interest in, uh, you know, keeping uh, nutrition costs reasonable and, and all the things that I think have an impact. Um, and I have an idea how that impacts economics, but being around those guys makes me realize uh, particularly if you think long-term and, you know, carryover effects and things like that, that it it, it really helps to kind of have a, a, a mindset that, that works that way. So um, I think I can include that on my bio simply because it's not because I know economics, but I like to work with people that do. Well, I mean, I think it's a fair statement in your bio. It says your primary area of interest. I mean, you're not claiming to be the know-all be-all of those yeah. of that integration. That's an area and of interest, think, not an area of expertise. How's that? Yeah. I, and I think that's fair. I think when in any industry that you're in, I don't think anybody is ever expected to be an expert on all the topics, but knowing when to say, I don't know, but I can find out the answer or I can find somebody to help us with that answer. I think that that is a really valuable tool to have, regardless of whether you're in veterinary medicine or research or communications or, you know, what have you. I think that that's a valuable tool to have. Um, you mentioned a little bit about nutrition costs. I can't remember specifically verbatim what it was, but you hinted on the cost of nutrition inputs. And so something that um, that I've seen across the country and in and, and our own operation as well is that there's a, a difficult trade-off right? Between saving money on feed resources, you know, we don't want to just throw money out the window, um, but also making sure that we're feeding cattle to stay in good condition so that they breed back. 
And this year, I think I read somewhere like 80% of the country a few weeks ago was in drought. Thankfully, some places have gotten some good rain here in the past week or so. But that's a that's a pretty critical trade-off. Um, why do you think that that's such a hang-up for people? Or, or what, what are your thoughts on that trade-off? Well, that, that is an important concept because one of the things that we know – so. I probably have my, my primary interest on the cow-calf side is reproductive efficiency. So if you think about profit as being income in the numerator and costs being the denominator, uh, I'm trying to get the numerator higher. So higher reproductive efficiency, better growth um, efficiency, those types of things to produce more pounds. But you have to really keep an eye on that denominator, the cost per pound or the cost per calf. And one of the things that my ag economist friends point out to me is that when they compare high profit operations and medium profit operations or low profit operations, the numerator changes a little bit, the denominator changes a lot. So that in the beef cattle, cow-calf production, the biggest difference between high profit and low profit herds is their ability to control costs. I wish it was reproductive efficiency because then I would be the most important thing. I'm the second most important thing because reproductive efficiency is important, but controlling cost is really important. So the 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 lesson or the 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 word saying that you've got to control costs is true. But and I think what you're also concerned about is if I can if I decrease costs too much and I start to affect that reproductive efficiency, that's not that's not a good cost savings. So so I'm going to give I'm going to give credit to people that say we need to be low cost producers and I agree with that. But I also think there has to be some guardrails around that is I still have to supply enough energy protein other nutrients to meet the energy need or the, meet the needs to at least have good reproductive efficiency. Um and so that becomes the guardrail. And so how do you handle that? Um well that's that's one of the really challenging things in cow calf production. One of the ways I think from a practical standpoint is you're going to decide, you're going to monitor body condition and body weight and really determine, you know, what are my calorie, my energy needs, my protein needs, and my mineral needs. And I need to meet those needs. I can't short the cow. Now, where I can save money is how do I meet those needs in the most cost-effective manner? And usually with cow-calf production, our feedstuffs are going to be relatively local. So our forages are generally very local. Uh, we don't tend to move hay very far except in emergencies, and I don't want to. So most of my forage is pretty local. And even my feedstuffs, it, it's what I can gather, what I can get locally for a good cost-effective uh, price. But that's that's really my my opportunity to save money is to do some price shopping per calorie of energy or per pound of protein and try among the sources that I have locally, what's the best cost effective method. So I need to meet the energy. I need to meet the protein. Now I can start trying to do it in the less, least expensive way possible. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that all makes perfect sense. And it was, it's an easy question for me to pose to you because I didn't, I didn't have to answer the question, wow. um, but well, it's, it's a easy to say it's, a, it's hard to do. <laughs> yeah, it's, you're right. It's easy to say and hard to do. Um, and, and that goes along with your, your primary interest, you know, is finding that, that perfect place. 
of, of where your, you know, where your numerator is not way off, I mean, way too big and decreasing your, your, your return on investment. So that's, that's definitely important. Um, and especially like in this, like you said, in a drought year, we don't want to have to haul hay very far and we don't have to truck it in from somewhere else. But I mean, at some point we have to spend that money to get them fed. Sometimes so. you got to figure out what, and, and honestly, this year, and a lot of people are making the decision that they're just going to have fewer mouths to feed, you know, and, and so you have to figure out what's the optimum um, trade off between, you know, higher feed costs to get through this time versus uh, reducing the, the demand. So fewer animals. There's a lot of, sadly, a lot of herd reduction going on right now. Um, speaking of drought, I hate, I don't really love talking about a drought, but it seems to be the topic of the last several months. Um, you answer a lot of questions. You're in research and you work very closely with um, industry and address questions from the industry. What questions are you getting right now from cow-calf and stop rock? I'm just going to start again. What questions are you getting right now from cow-calf and stalker operators that are in this drought and like what they're dealing with lack of forage? Or are you getting questions about what advice you can give them or maybe how they can pivot and um, get some better efficiency? Well, some of the questions that we get are, you know, how to use uh, poorer quality forage than, than I would like, you know, uh, be it ditch hay or whatever. You know, it's basically we're, we're reaching for whatever we can find. Um, and so how do we use our supplements, you know, be it byproduct feeds or whatever, to kind of bring the, bring the total diet up to a sufficient level? Other kind of odd things, um, toxic plants become a little bit more of a problem in drought because cattle are out um, consuming things that they would typically avoid. Mm -hmm. um, water availability, just flat having enough water. Um, mm -hmm. But then also a lot of ponds as they go down. Um, we can run into some just water quality issues. So you have both water quality and water quantity issues um, that people are asking about. And the, the problem is a lot of these um, questions are, are not necessarily easy to solve. Um, right. I, I would just like it to rain. But uh, yeah, that would solve a lot of them. It would solve <laughs> a lot of problems. Yeah. But I think yeah. what people are really having to do is, is again, um, look at the productivity of the individuals you have. And is there an opportunity to decrease the number of mouths to feed? Um, so doing an early preg check or doing a preg check, getting rid of open cows, getting rid of later bred cows, um, you know, just anybody that's not quite as efficient as their sister probably needs to go. And, um, and then how do I stretch the feed resources that I do have? Right. And that's interesting. You touched on, you, know, you touched on breeding there and getting bred earlier in the season. Um, Cause that obviously that leads to heavier calves at um, weaning if they've got that extra breeding cycle there. Um, so you've recently shared that AI sync is more difficult in cows than in heifers. Would you care to expound upon that and how the drought possibly has an effect on that difficulty? Yeah, there's a, there's a few things that uh, kind of I think we in the beef industry have, have found. And uh, when I was in practice, we had a number of clients that would uh, use synchronization and AI in their heifers because you think about the difference between heifers and cows. First of all, a heifer does not have a calf at side. Um, and they haven't calved already. So I don't have to worry about that period of infertility after they calve. Uh, and so as a group of heifers, I can kind of manage them because of their similar age 
and I can manage their nutrition so that as a group, they, be they behave more like a group. And so synchronization works well in animals that are very similar. Cows tend to be very different. They're different ages. You have two-year-olds, you have mature age, you have some aged cows. You've got cows that calved 30 days ago. You have cows that calved 80 days ago. Uh, you have cows that are heavy milkers. You have cows that are, are light milkers. So just by their nature, cows are more diverse than a, a group of cows is more diverse from a fertility standpoint, a ready to breed standpoint than a group of heifers. That's one of the reasons. And then I'll just go back to the, the calf. I mean, if, if you're going to do a synchronization protocol, that means uh, sorting calves off, uh, working the cows, getting them back together again. And so my it, it's a little more of a, a labor intensive, a little more time and labor to accomplish that. And in a and so that's one is just more difficult. The other thing is, and I'll go back to my time since they calved, those cows that calved relatively recently are not going to respond as well to my synchronization protocol as those cows that calved 50, 60, 70 days ago. Um, and so um, I work with some herds that they basically just ag agreed that they're only going to try synchronization and AI on cows that calved in the first, say, 30 days of the of the calving season, because those are their best bets. Those and We can. We can jumpstart. We can get some cows that are calving later uh, to settle to AI, but the percentage is not going to be as good. My, my breed up percentage of those cows that calved early is pretty decent. And as they, as you get closer and closer to, they calved recently and now I'm trying to synchronize them. Oh, I remember the ones that that works on, but there's more that don't. Uh, and so, but then I've just added another complexity. Now I'm saying, well, don't even synchronize all the cows, sort them by calving date. And I, I'm just, I just keep adding complexities to right. getting cows synchronized and AI'd. And when I say synchronize and AI heifers, it's like, oh yeah, anybody can do that. So that's, <laughs> that's kind of what I mean by um, there's a there's a reason that in the beef industry, a much higher percentage of heifers are synchronized and AI than cows. And and I don't think that's because we're lazy. I think it's because it, heifers are just a lot easier. Yeah. Um I don't, well, two things. So I don't think anybody was ever accused uh, in the beef industry of people being lazy. So it's definitely not that. But I feel like very rarely, personally, just from my perspective, do I hear people say that things are easier with heifers because I feel like in general, heifers are still learning how to be like one in the world. And they, true. they just create, I feel like sometimes they create more problems. So it's, I guess it's interesting to me to hear something where, cows are actually more more different this, than this might be the one thing that's a little <laughs> bit easier with heifers so yeah yeah well that's good um well i appreciate that that insight because that's i mean definitely learned something there so i feel like we've talked about drought enough and and just the that just drags us all down even though it's obviously something we need to discuss it's um we're gonna pivot a little bit so i have some fun things to to pitch your way so the first of these is um like as I'm, I kind of do a lot of agriculture advocacy type things, and they always talk about like your elevator speech, right? So what's your elevator speech if someone asks you what you do? So my way to twist this back to you is that you're on an elevator with um, a commercial producer, and you've got like three minutes from the lobby to the fifth floor to share a few tips to increase their business profitability or their ranch profitability. What are those three things? 
Okay. I'm going to pick, <laughs> I get to do the order that I want to do. It yes, may not you can. be the most important order, but uh, the first thing I'm going to talk about is heifer development. I want to get heifers bred so that they calve for the first time early. And I may even want to limit their breeding season because my main concern is I want them to have enough time after that first calf because you're right, heifers are more of a problem than cows. To have that first calf, they have a longer period of infertility following that calf. And so I want to give them plenty of time so that they can get bred early for their second calf. So when I say good heifer development, the goal is to have a high percentage of the heifers that I get pregnant as a heifer to get pregnant early in their second breeding season. I think that really sets them up for success all through the rest of their life. So early pre first pregnancy, early second pregnancy, and then cows start to become really easy to manage. So that's one. The second one is become a good grass manager. And I'm going to have to tip my hat to someone else because that's not me. But when I get on ranches uh, that things seem to run smoothly, it's because they are good grass managers. And that's, that's the main resource that we have. Our cows are our, our combines. Our cows are our harvesting mechanism. But uh, really focus on that good grass management. So whatever that looks like in your geographic area, but that's water development, grazing management, um, tree and weed control, everything that that the good grass managers do well. And the third thing, I'm going to kind of go back to something you said earlier. Um, none of us are smart enough or have enough time to become an expert on all the things that really impact uh, cow-calf production. So I think it's really important to develop a team of people you really trust. And, and that team is going to be relatively local. So your, your local veterinarian, your feed supplier, you know, somebody in, in range or ranch management, um, grass management, that team of people that you can go to and get some good advice, um, I think is, is really critical. So, you know, heifer development, grass management, and a team of people to help you, uh, that, that's a good place to start anyway. I like the grass management one. I was not expecting you to say that, but I really like that. Well, it's, I recognize my deficits and that's not something I would be willing or able to help somebody with, but it's darn important. Oh, very much so. We, uh, um, one of my role models is um, Debbie Lyons Blythe. And I think it was her that I heard say a long time ago that she was a, a grass rancher, a grass farmer, and also had cows. And that's always kind of stuck with me because what you said about like the, the cattles are just a combine, like that's very, that's, that really resonates. That's really important. Okay. Dr. Larson, I have another burning question for you. All right. If you could wave a magic wand and change anything about the beef industry, what would it be and why? Uh, a, that is a good question. I, I don't know. I may get into trouble with this answer, but I'll give it a shot anyway. One is, I, and I'm, I'm just as bad as anybody else. I would like easy answers. And, <laughs> and I think anything that is easy has been long ago discovered and implemented. So what we have left is kind of just the hard work of getting cows pregnant, managing our forages, dealing with markets. Um, and, and, and so I, I don't mean, I don't mean that as an insult at all is I, I wish things were easier, but this is a tough business and there's just a lot of little things that have to be done well uh, day in and day out. And then tomorrow it's another set of problems. So if I could wave a magic, well, maybe if it was truly magic, I would make everything easy again, 
But if that's not possible, my magic wand would be that we just kind of accept that uh, the easy answers are are long past, and we're we are now part of uh, trying to come up with the best solution, given the challenges that we have. Well, that's a fair answer. I mean, I, there are no easy answers. I would like for you to be able to wave your wand and do that as well. But you're right; there there aren't any. So. Um, well, like I said, we are here on the Beef Podcast, and you are also a podcaster yourself with the Beef Cattle Institute Cattle Chat Podcast. What kind of reception? I, I think you guys have been going for, I mean, is it like three years? Is it more than that? Four years. So we've been going for a while. Yeah. So what? That's congratulations. That's a very long time, a lot of episodes. Um, what kind of reception have you seen, you know, and how has it been met, you know, since you launched Cattle Chat four years ago? It's really been better than I expected. Uh, We really didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know what we were getting into. And in fact, I'll admit the first two episodes that we recorded, we ended up just throwing away and we never posted them because they were, (laughs) they were that bad. Um, (laughs) We had, uh, we had to learn so many things. Um, And when we first started, I'm pretty sure that my mother and Dr. White's dad were the only two people listening. And they may have been the only two people listening for a while. But, you know, one of the things that really helped us was having people like you, Brandy, and others that had a social media presence, um, per, first of all, just be on our podcast and then kind of word of mouth gets out there. So it's been actually quite good. Um, we're, we're over 25,000 listeners a month, which when I asked my daughter who's in high school, I said, well, how many listeners do you think she, we have a month? And she goes, I don't know, dad, 500. And so she was actually pretty impressed what we were able to do. And, and I'm impressed as in hard for her to believe that that many people would actually want to listen to us. So I, I would say that's the positive thing is, is, um, and I think a lot of people in agriculture have some time in the tractor or car or truck um, and podcasts kind of work pretty well as an information source uh, when you're stuck behind the wheel for a little bit of time. Well, I will admit, I mean, I, I listen to cattle chat and I enjoy it. And I will, you've got it. You're onto something there with the tractor because I listen to podcasts while I'm driving and while I'm running, because like my brain is captive then, you know, I'm not trying to work and stuff like that. So, um, congratulations on 25 listeners, um, per episode. That is phenomenal. That's, that's a great goal to aspire to. That's, that's really great. Congratulations. Yeah, we're, we're enjoying it. So, Okay. Well, that's great. Um, so for, these are our kind of like last rapid fire questions for you. So, um, first off, what is your favorite beef related book or resource? That's a good question. And and my answer might be a little bit different than some people. There is a, it's, it's called the vet clinics of North America and it comes out every few months. Uh, and it's a, it's a, so I'm making my fingers this big. It's, it's a relatively small, uh, booklet, but they get some really good authors and do good summary articles on topics that have real practical um, importance. And so I really do turn to those. I think they're really useful. Uh, probably the best resources. I've got a group of colleagues that um, are really good to bounce ideas off of, and they'll they'll hold me accountable when I get off onto crazy tangents. Um, and so I think one is these books or magazines or whatever you want to call them, they're hardback, but um, those are great summaries of some of the best minds. And then I've got some pretty good minds just up and down the hallway um, that are pretty good at keeping me informed about things. 
Yeah, truly, I would say that Kansas State University and just that entire department in which you're working is, is a kind of a wealth of information that could help you find the kind of resources that you're looking for. Um, well, on the same note, what is a book that's not related to the beef industry that you are currently reading? people that always has at least three books going on at a time. <laughs> uh, and, and, and again, it's, I, I may sound a little bit, I don't know, nerdy or something, but one of them I really, that I'm really having fun with right now, and I'm having a hard time putting it down is a mystery by GK Chesterton called um, the man who was Thursday. And so this was written like in 1906, but it's a really good mystery. And so that's really fun. Um, I'm actually reading a biography of Isaac Newton, which oh. is interesting. He was an interesting dude and, and had a lot of, you know, obviously, you know, the apple fell on his head and he discovered calculus and gravity and everything else, but he had an interesting life and I've learned a lot. And then the last thing is I'm, I'm going through the booklet series, uh, Every Man a Warrior. And so those three things are kind of the main things that I'm reading right now. I believe it's Every Man a Wildcat. Oh, that's the other email. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. Those all sound very interesting. Um, okay, our last rapid fire question here is, what is a trait of someone you know that has allowed them to be successful? Yeah. You don't necessarily have to name the person, but I guess it's more of a trait of like, or I guess you can if you want, you could name this person. But, you know, what's something that you know that is in their kind of like tool chest that has allowed them to be successful? Actually, a couple people come to mind. And the interesting thing for this trait, the two guys that I can think of are both named Robert. And it's not me. Um, that must be a pattern, is that? It, maybe it's a pattern. And it, it maybe goes back to what we were saying a little bit earlier about there's no easy answers. But both these guys are way better than I am at kind of rolling with the punches. So they get punched, um, drought, um, bull problems, you know, family problems, whatever. And they seem to be able to um, not dwell on the fact that they're going through a problem and they respond by trying to solve the problem quicker. I like a little bit of time to whine personally, um, <laughs> but I look up to these guys as guys that seem to be able to take a punch and as quickly as possible, start working on solutions. And that that's kind of a goal. I'd like to be like that. Um, and just so happens they're both named Robert. So it must be the name. Maybe so. It'll be the name. So, well, that's great. Um, I think, I mean, that's a definitely, it's a, not really a tangible talent, I guess, but remaining optimistic in the times of challenges is yes. definitely something. I mean, I, I aspire to be better at that because I'm kind of like you. I, I want to have my little bit of wine time occasionally. So um, W-H-I-N-E. And um, so well, that's great. Thank you for those. Um, I know that our guests and our audience will um, find that very interesting just to kind of get a, a glimpse into the life of Dr. Larson. That is all the questions we have for today and all of our time. Thank you very much, Dr. Larson, for joining us here on our inaugural episode on the show. Um, I personally have learned a lot about beef cattle reproduction, as well as like the veterinarian um, teaching side of vet school and the veterinary profession. So thank you for sharing that with us for today. If you want, yeah, I was excited to have you on to have another podcaster on another case later. Um, audience, if you want more information about Dr. Larson or to hear more of his thoughts, you can find him at the BCI Cattle Chat podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And we will have that his information and those links in the show notes. 
Uh, thank you all for joining us this week, and we hope you will join us next week on the Beef Podcast.